Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And you're very welcome back. It's been a busy last few weeks for When Diplomacy Fails, even though I've been almost totally silent for the Christmas break. You should know that I'm recording in the new apartment right now, so... Any acoustic issues or anything like that, I apologise, I'm still trying to get the hang of this. But yeah, auditing is going pretty well, it's made all much easier by the fact that you guys have been so incredibly generous for the past few weeks. Thank you so much. All of your money, all your support, in every single way has been so, so appreciated, and I must say I really had a great Christmas, and it's so nice to not be working in retail anymore. Any other retail people out there, holler out to you, keep doing what you're doing, I know what the struggle is like. So yeah, When Diplomacy Fails is back after a two-week hiatus, and let's just say I have been busy in other ways other than adulting as well. I have some pretty huge plans for When Diplomacy Fails, you may realise that It is five years old in May, and let's just say we won't be passing that anniversary without some significant content. Right, I don't want to give it too much away, but I'm really, really excited, you should know. Anyway, in the meantime, I hope you all enjoyed yourselves and that you're ready to jump back into this era with about as much vengeance as Louis XIV had planned for the Dutch, which is to say, quite a lot. We've got something of a steady schedule in mind for the next four months, you'll be happy to know, until I get married in May and drop off the radar for about a month, but as I said, you'll be glad to know that I won't be leaving you high and dry during that period. At the risk of dropping any more hints, I'd like to say a huge thanks to all of you guys who have donated or become subscribing history friends since we last spoke. Well, I last spoke to you. It's still amazing to think that I have somewhere in the region of 20 history friends giving me regular monies. But there's always room for more, so if you'd like to give a small amount each month and be in with a chance to win a free t-shirt, then check out wdfpodcast.com today. I would also like to remind you that When Diplomacy Fells' first book is out within the week, so have a look for it on Amazon by searching for my name or simply A Matter of Honour, that is honour with the English spelling, and work from there. It'd be awesome to think that my book will soon be in the hands of you that have pre-ordered it all those months ago. These are really exciting times for me and When Diplomacy Fells, and I'm so delighted that you guys have been here to take part. Finally, before we jump right back into the Franco-Dutch War, a reminder that When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. And there's two things you should know about this. First, you should go and subscribe to the Agora Podcast feed, as us podcasters band together on regular occasions 
to drop some podcast knowledge on you guys. Recently, for example, we released an episode asking whether the Peace of Westphalia was overrated, and yours truly featured prominently. So, if you just can't get enough of me, check that out by searching for the Agora podcast feed. The second thing you can do is check out Agora's podcast of the month, which for January is a podcast called Reconsider by guys Eric and Xander, which looks at politics. But be warned, these guys won't do the thinking for you. Instead, they help you to navigate important issues in domestic and foreign politics by providing historical, political, and theoretical context. They also put in tons of research to help you understand all policy options in front of you, so that you can choose your own way and perhaps reconsider your current position. Haha, <laughs> hence the name. Genius! And yes, they did tell me to say that, but you should still check this out, guys. It's about as close to the weekly fail as we're going to get for the moment. Sad face. So make sure you all show some love and check out Reconsider. That again, Reconsider. Alright, I think that's enough rambling for one day. Let's get back to the regular scheduled programming. Thanks and enjoy the show. In the last episode, we dealt with the circumstances that surrounded Charles II's schemes to undermine the Franco-Dutch alliance by approaching the latter with a triple alliance that would commit the Dutch, together with Britain and Sweden, to make war on whoever refused to restore the European peace, be it France or Spain. France and Spain had been at war since May 1667, when Louis' anticipated invasion of the Spanish Netherlands finally came to pass. Contrary to the historical record as we saw last time, Johann de Witt, leader of the Netherlands, did not panic and abandon Louis XIV's France because he feared French advances, And this did not cause a chain reaction whereby Louis, offended at Dutch slights, cozied up to Charles II and began to scheme against the Dutch with London by his side. The reality of the situation, in my theory as I explained last time, was more complex but basically revolved around Charles II being more of an important player in the era than history has given him credit for. It was not DeWitt's fears, but Charles' scheming, in other words, that led to a rift between the French and Dutch allies. The secret articles of the Triple Alliance, rather than the Triple Alliance itself, was what was so offensive to Louis and what led to such a rift. It was one Charles engineered, as we saw, because in my view, Charles recognised that in this instance, Johann DeWitt was in a tough situation. For years, the Dutch had operated on the basis that if it came down to it, an Anglo-Dutch alliance would be possible. The mere suggestion of such a policy was enough, DeWitt believed, to persuade Louis towards a certain policy. If the French were unwilling to bend to the Dutch way of doing things, in other words, the unspoken fact of the day was that the Dutch would probably seek better bedfellows elsewhere, in London above all. Louis's fear of being surrounded by the two maritime powers of the era was a real one, But there was no indication that matters had reached such a pitch between the French and Dutch by January 1668, when the Triple Alliance was signed. DeWitt agreed to the Triple Alliance, we discovered last time, because his bluff had been called. If he turned Britain down, Louis would see that an Anglo-Dutch alliance was not possible, and he would be less flexible or considerate towards his Dutch ally, and may even look to continue the ongoing war against Spain. 
So, there's a little recap for you guys, since for many of you it's been a while since you've been in this era, so hopefully now you feel more up to speed. Now let's see where all this stuff leads to. Angry and choleric men are as ungrateful as and unsociable as thunder and lightning, being in themselves all storm and tempest. But quiet and easy natures are like fair weather. Welcome to all. Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon. Johann de Witt agreed to join his state to Britain and Sweden in early 1668 because he had to prove that he could. But he by no means wished to use this new agreement as a stick with which to beat the French. The French alliance was in many ways the cornerstone of his foreign policy. He didn't trust Charles as Britain, with good reason, and he hoped and planned for a situation whereby the Triple Alliance could coexist alongside the alliance he had with France. Then word got out about the secret articles, insignificant to De Witt, insofar as he didn't think they would even come into play, and then all of De Witt's cards came tumbling down. The secret articles had committed the Dutch with their Triple Alliance partners to pressure either power, be it the Spanish or the French, to make peace if they elected to continue the war. De Witt may have seen the secret articles as unimportant, because as we saw last time, Louis had already agreed to a series of limited gains in the Spanish Netherlands if the Spanish would make peace. The pressure of the Spanish to make peace was the excuse to it had long given to French diplomats in early 1668 when word of the Triple Alliance got out. When it was learned of, most likely thanks to leakages by Charles in London, that articles existed to pressure the French to abide by these agreements and limited gains and not seek further ones upon pain of combined military pressure and even war, that was when the great rift between France and the Dutch began. Louis was offended, not so much because the Dutch were actively using the Triple Alliance to hold him back in the war with Spain, as some historians have noted, but because if he, as France's absolutist monarch, elected to go for more than he had initially wanted, then he would be pressured not to. It removed, in other words, Louis' ability to have free will in the war. More than that, though, while Louis took it as a personal insult that he would be dictated to in the event that he asked for more, what really stung him was that the Dutch were willing to use force in the event that they would declare war if he asked for more than he had initially agreed to. To Johann de Witt, the secret articles may never have needed to appear in the public eye, since Louis was adamant about the gains that he had wanted, and had reached the understanding with de Witt in late 1667, whereby he committed France not to advance upon it. Louis was not about to break his word, and had achieved satisfaction for France in the war. It was not the case then that de Witt held Louis back from getting his satisfaction in the war. 
Rather, he removes the ability of Louis to abide by anything but his word. To DeWitt, then, the secret articles provided for events that would never occur, and thus they never need be known to Louis or applied in real life. Hush, hush. But their practicality did not matter. It did not matter that the members of the Triple Alliance never actually applied the secret articles to the war with France and Spain. What mattered, to Louis at least, was that such articles existed at all. It was just not the kind of thing an ally was supposed to do, especially after all France had done for the Dutch in the past. Seeing his princely will be restrained by a mere republic and the person of De Witt was the true reason for Louis's wrath, not his resentment at being held back from conquering the Spanish Netherlands, which he never really wanted to do, at least not at this stage. The distinction is important for us, even though it might seem trivial and a little bit boring by now, because it helps to emphasise the high regard in which Louis held his own sense of personal honour, and the standards he expected in those that stood by him. Does that make sense? I know I've gone over this more than an Irish county council digs up a footpath, but I find it so interesting and representative of the kind of characters we're dealing with, so I don't really see the harm in dwelling on it a bit. It's also an immensely important watershed moment in the history of European diplomacy, because this is the last time in the period that the French and Dutch will really see eye to eye, well at least in Louis's lifetime. The repercussions of this event lead to the French and Dutch fighting on opposite sides for the next century, at least, and they also lead to perhaps the most passionate and remarkable rivalry of this age between Louis XIV of France and William, Prince of Orange. Really, to conclude this aspect of the episode, what you need to remember is Charles's role in all of this, since that's what makes my version of these events different to the other versions. Whereas most narratives place Charles in the role of a somewhat interested party, they also try to paint him as a sort of innocent bystander. Such a version of events is only possible if we blame DeWitt for going against Louis, or if we take it for granted that Louis was offended by the Triple Alliance from the start, as some do. In actual fact, though, Louis was quite content with the Triple Alliance, for the first month of it being revealed, because DeWitt presented it as an agreement which could be used to pressure Spain. If DeWitt was the reactionary fool that the traditional narrative paints him as here, when he runs off from France and sets up the Triple Alliance to halt French gains in the Spanish Netherlands, then it wouldn't make sense for him to still want to hold on to the French Alliance at the same time as the Triple Alliance, would it? Yet, this is exactly what he does, and to me this proves that it was Charles who really set things in motion. It was Charles who revealed the secret articles, because only by doing so could he separate the French and Dutch and bring about the result that he hoped to get by signing the Triple Alliance, a Franco-Dutch estrangement. With the rift in place, Charles would be safe to approach the now slighted and offended French king, who also happened to be his cousin, and set in motion the planned defensive alliance with France. As well as the war of vengeance against the dishonourable Dutch Republic, that he'd always hoped for. Yet, just as the domestic concerns of De Witt meant that the anti-French party at home forced him against his better judgement to agree to the Triple Alliance, so too was Charles seeking to use this agreement, of the Triple Alliance that is, to appease those at home. The domestic concerns of the maritime powers were issues which were of paramount and underrated importance at the time. As Peter Gale noted in his book on the Houses of Orange and Stuart, 
Subsequent events were to make it quite clear that Charles II had not abandoned his real intention, an alliance with France, and that, as far as he was concerned, the Triple Alliance was merely a convenient tool for allaying the suspicions of Parliament, which rejoiced at his Protestant policy with the Dutch, and above all for undermining, at last, the good relations between the Dutch Republic and France, which stood so continuously in his own way. To say that this was the era of larger-than-life personalities is a historical truth. You had the very obvious Sun King, as well as the tenacious De Witt and later William of Orange, not to mention the indefatigable Leopold as Holy Roman Emperor, but you also had Charles II of Britain. Too often, Charles is overlooked, as the traditional narrative demonstrates, yet if we look at the situation objectively, he actually succeeded remarkably well in fooling both of his rivals, undermining their alliance by playing to their individual fears and emotions, and then tactically applying a soothing diplomatic policy to get what he really wanted in the years that followed. It was nothing short of genius. As we learned last time, when peace between France and Spain was made in May 1668 with the Treaty of Alla Chapelle, the secret clauses and ultimate betrayal perpetrated by De Witt helped Louis to forget that he had been satisfied with his smaller gains in the first place. All of Europe talked of a Dutch betrayal, of a France being held back by its former ally. Soon the story went that the Hague had threatened war if Louis did not pull his forces back from the Spanish Netherlands, but also from French, Comte, and in Catalonia. In fact, as we saw, the Dutch never threatened war. De Witt never would have dreamed of such an act. The truth was it was enough for Louis to see that even the possibility of such a threat was within the Dutch diplomatic arsenal for him to feel the betrayal. As if things weren't bad enough for De Witt, he was then forced, by virtue of Louis's offended pride, to acknowledge over summer 1668 that the French and Dutch, at least for the foreseeable future, could not be friends. With few other options then, he would have to cling to the Triple Alliance and to the security which that agreement gave, which as you can imagine confirmed Louis's suspicions that De Witt had been planning such a swerve all along and served as its own self-fulfilling prophecy. The French king would never admit that it was his own affronted feelings which forced De Witt to make the best of a bad situation. Tying his policy to an agreement which he hadn't been fond of in the first place, De Witt then learned that Prince William of Orange, now 17 and only two months shy of his 18th birthday, was seeking in September of 1668 to present himself to the states of Zealand. Historically, Holland and Zealand had a patchy record of cross-provincial cooperation, so De Witt was certainly wary of what the determined young prince was planning. Though the beleaguered Grand Pensionary could not have known it yet, while the months before signalled the end of his predominance in foreign affairs, what the young William III planned to do would mark the beginning of the end of De Witt's shaky maintenance of power at home, following nearly two decades at the top of the greasy pole. While hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can see the moment De Witt was detached from France as the moment his downward spiral began, the Dutch Grand Pensionary had no iota of what was to come in early autumn 1668. In fact, his colleagues were so grateful for his abilities in brokering peace between France and Spain, and for getting the Dutch in alliance with their former English enemy, that De Witt was re-elected as Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland for the third time. Because of gestures like these, 
DeWitt's influence remained intact in spite of the apparent failures of his policy, though there was one aspect of this policy which, unlike the situation with France, was more difficult to mask. William of Orange was nearly 18 by September 1668, and the years before had seen DeWitt argue for a series of confusing and somewhat contradictory rulings to be pushed through in the states of Holland and then the Dutch states general. The aim was always to limit the influence of the House of Orange and the Orangist party by drip-feeding what the young prince and that party wanted. If he could hold back the young prince from taking the reins of the Dutch state and thus stop him from displacing the regents, which De Witt had represented for the past two decades, then De Witt would consider it a job well done. This is seen in the fact that during the war with Britain, De Witt had moved against the Orangist party by granting William some privileges and rights, in the hope that these gestures would both placate William and disarm the scheming Orangists, who constantly plotted to use British help to get their man back into power. By preempting the ambitions of the Orangists, De Witt believed that he was acting in the best interests of the Netherlands. Yet by September 68, it had become apparent that William of Orange was as ambitious as his father, but as calculating and tenacious as his other ancestors. He was not, in other words, one whom the Grand Pensionary could manipulate. Even Peter Gale, whose entire analysis, brilliant as it really is, of Stuart-Orange relations during the period up to 1672, generally creates the impression of the author's dislike for the Orangist party regarding William of Orange's character, that... If William III had been nothing but a party fanatic, relying solely on the commonality and the preachers, and ignoring the reality of national life in the manner of the court nobility, Dutch history might have been faced with the catastrophe. As it was, the young man surprised everyone who came in contact with him, with the maturity of his judgment, his great willpower, and his self-command. For all their differences, William III and Louis XIV were similar in that they never second-guessed their divinely ordained destiny. William's position in the Netherlands was a tad less clear-cut, but because he always carried himself with a degree of confidence but never arrogance, he had the effect of both unnerving his enemies and reassuring his allies. He was just developed enough by 1668 to begin to play a defining role in Dutch society, Yet all of this would have been for naught had he been the kind of prince to enjoy frivolous displays or wild parties. William was nothing like his Stuart uncle, Charles II, and that he was neither a womanizer nor a particularly hard worker, but he was especially well equipped to deal with what Europe was to throw at him and his little republic over the next few decades. Under the terrifying circumstances which were to dec- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Boom. It's hard to imagine any other figure in history handling the situation better. William may have understood that his family had a history of greatness and that he was the heir to this greatness, but even with his supporters, he could never be permitted to march into the Netherlands and announce his intentions to take over from the regions. Such behaviour would have divided Dutch society and perhaps even brought about civil war. He, of course, wanted to be Stadtholder and Captain General, as his father and ancestors had been, but to do that he would have to chip away gradually at the regime of the regents. And to do that, he would have to be seen to operate within the limits set down by those regions. What limits existed by September 1668? Well, we won't be listing them all, since many overlap one another and it'll only cause confusion. But perhaps the most important one was the so-called Perpetual Edict, an incredible ruling which was signed through in early August 1667, just after the triumph of the burning of English ships outside London. It's important to remember that triumph was in the air, because otherwise it's difficult to imagine how DeWitt could have got such a monumental law to pass. The edict actually came lumped with two other resolutions, which also helped place it in context. The first placed a distant relative of the Orange House in the position of Field Marshal, to fill the void of Captain General, which Orange family members had once routinely held. The second put it that William III would come and sit in the Council of State, a somewhat powerless body where essentially representatives from each of the provincial states would meet to advise the actual States General. Because the Dutch governmental system at this stage was so complicated, to me at least, and unique, I won't dwell too heavily on it. When we come to the actual perpetual edict, the other two resolutions make more sense. They had been designed to pacify the Orangists so that the real Whopper wouldn't outrage them as much as it normally would have. The perpetual edict stated that in the states of Holland, a stadtholder would never again hold the position of Captain General, as all House of Orange stadtholders had in the past. Furthermore, any Captain Generals would in the future have to swear not to appoint their own stadtholder. And finally, just to really drive the point home and add further security, the point of stadtholder, that strange semi-colonial position which the House of Orange members had always held, was permanently banned. The different councillors who served their communities on the various town councils, in the 18 town councils in total within Holland, had to swear an oath to uphold these rulings. On top of all this, De Witt wanted his peers to spread this edict to the other six provinces and get them to agree to its terms as well, 
so that all provinces could cooperate as one and perhaps abandon their orangist sympathisers. The process of getting the other provinces to agree to abolish the stadtholder position, which naturally was the first and most galling thing any Dutch official would see when they read the edict's terms, was referred to as the harmony, a somewhat strange label considering the lack of harmony it would demonstrate between the different provinces. DeWitt perhaps envisioned that the edict, once it passed, would lead to a new era of cooperation and stability between the provinces, and thus harmony seems appropriate in this sense. Yet DeWitt would have known at the same time that persuading all the provinces, each with their own levels of orangist sympathies and histories of using the stadtholder position, to agree to abolish the best chance of the House of Orange to achieve its ambitions, not to mention outlawing any possibility to merge the positions of Captain General with stadtholder, would be a very tough sell. He hoped and gambled that this hard sell would be offset by the fact that William of Orange would be given a place on the Council of State at least, an ambitious position which actually provoked calls from his more hardline region friends that DeWitt had gone too far. DeWitt was fresh off a stunning military victory against Britain though, and he wanted to ensure that no level of treachery and scheming from the Orangist party could be expected as had been seen during the last war. The perpetual edict, in a way, can be seen as DeWitt's high point then, and the symbol of regent victory in the Republic, but they had a predictably hard time persuading even their own regent colleagues to approve of it. Once this was done, the following summer of 1668, amidst DeWitt's perceived victories in getting a British alliance and holding Louis XIV back from conquering the Spanish Netherlands, the regents seemed to be supreme. With Holland promising in unison to implement the perpetual edict across its varied towns and cities, the task now was one of implementing the harmony across the other provinces, which, remember, meant the task of persuading the other provinces to follow suit, to ban the stadtholder position, swear the oath, etc. It was in the midst of this campaign of persuasion then that the nearly 18-year-old William of Orange sought to make his mark on Dutch society even with the constraints that the perpetual edict imposed. To understand what William's first real domestic move means, we're going to have to give a bit of context. I'll try not to get too bogged down here, guys, since Dutch politics can be somewhat tedious at times, but hopefully most of it won't be too alien. It's the dreaded chestnut of Dutch domestics, or more specifically, how the Republic of the Netherlands was structured. Perhaps I should issue a warning before we go any further. This is my understanding of 17th century Dutch politics as I see it. It is highly possible that I could be wrong, so don't take my account here as law, but studies on how the Dutch domestic and regional politics worked in the 1600s aren't exactly easy to come by. Anyway, so we know that seven provinces existed in the Netherlands, and that in each of these provinces a lot of autonomy was present. The States-General was the kind of national parliament, where a lot was meant to get done and debated, but just as much could happen in the provincial states themselves. The States of Holland, for example, was Holland's regional parliament, packed with representatives from all walks of life, but mostly what was full of regents by our timeline. You probably remember this from before, just like you probably remember that every province has its own states parliament, and that every province has a stadtholder and grand pensionary. Stadtholder, as a position, had been complicated by the perpetual edict and by its efforts to pressure the other provinces to follow suit, but how did each of the provinces conduct their day-to-day affairs? 
through an assembly, of course, normally between seven and ten men, who were elected by the states of that province to serve terms of varying lengths. It wasn't democratic, in other words, insofar as the elected members elected their own members who weren't elected by the normal citizenry, but it at least meant you had a revolving door of officials coming through the bureaucracy of the Republic. To add another layer to this, as if it wasn't onion-like already, members of each assembly in the seven provinces would send representatives to the states general. To add yet further layers to this, Johann de Witt was the Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland, which is grand, it means that he always sat on the assembly and thus always sat on the states general as well. Because Holland was the most important, influential province at this time, de Witt's Grand Pensionary position made him the most important figure, because Holland was, well, the most important province. Does this make sense? If it helps, think of modern-day parliaments, then the smaller assembly being the kind of provincial cabinet, and then the states-general just not really fitting in anywhere because the Dutch Republic was a strange beast. Grand Pensionary is comparable to the position of Prime Minister today, but only because Holland was so important to the Dutch state. In de jure terms, De Witt had no more power than any of the other six pensionaries of the provinces, but his very distinction that the histories have given him as essentially the leader of the Netherlands, and we've used it as well, was an unofficial one, but it was also attributed to him by foreign observers at the time, so it denoted his significance. The reason why I ran down the details of the Dutch state for the umpteenth time is because what William does here only makes sense if you understand how the state actually worked, or didn't work, during this era. William of Orange in September 68 made a big show of landing in the province of Zeeland and asking to be installed in their states as First Noble. First Noble was a somewhat vague position, and we haven't really encountered it before, but it basically enabled distinguished Dutch persons to sit in on the provincial affairs of whatever province they held the First Nobleship, as it was called, in. By choosing Zeeland, William was perhaps sending a message to De Witt that he didn't need Holland, and that he could make his way on his own. Yet, as De Witt had to accept... William also wasn't breaking any rules. This was because, after an agreement reached upon his mother's death in 1660, and elaborated on within the Perpetual Edict of 1667, William was to be granted the position of first noble in any province, and educated on matters of state by being brought into the Council of State once he came of age. The Council of State was the national equivalent, so the countrywide equivalent to the provincial assembly that we covered earlier. A first noble could sit at the table in a provincial assembly and the council of state, and by asking for the position, William could argue that he was operating in line with the terms of both settlements, since both were typically vague. This was seen as a good halfway house for the Orange House. It wouldn't be as far as stadtholder, but it was also better than grand pensionary, because it meant William was free to move through all the provinces without restraint. This lack of restraint came purely because his position as first noble, previously reserved for esteemed or retired great statesmen, held no actual power. Officially, it was an advisory role, and first nobles in the past hadn't really voted on legislation necessarily, but they would usually provide a guiding hand in negotiations or be like the wise man in the back of the room that everyone seemed to look up to. Yet DeWitt also recognised its less explicit benefits, 
that because William would gain the right to sit in on Dutch affairs, increasing his reputation, presence and knowledge as he did so, the role was more important in reality than it may have looked on paper. As we'll see in later episodes, the strange beast which was the Dutch Republic was so keen to have their orange cake and eat it that they can often seem contradictory in the legislation that they implemented. In other words, don't worry if you're confused, because I am, historians are, and the Dutch most likely were themselves at the time. Even in the couple of years which followed and saw William take up his first nobleship position, confusion and division reigned over how much powers he would actually wield. Would his vote on the Council of State or Assembly be advisory or binding? Would he even have a vote at all? Some argued that letting him in was going too far. Others argued that giving him a vote with genuine weight was in line with the 1667 resolution that aimed to educate the young prince on matters of state. How better to educate William than to have him sit on the government's meetings and vote on policy as it was adopted? I feel these developments seem so convoluted to us because the Dutch didn't really know what to do with their orange prince, so long as the regents reigned supreme. It seemed like everyone was flying by the seat of their pants, because they absolutely were. This explains why DeWitt was so angry when he learned of what William had done. Not only had the move come as a surprise, but it also came earlier than originally agreed. The first nobleship was only meant to be for people that had come of age in the Dutch Republic, which to Dutch sensibilities meant the age of 23. William was only 17 when he went for it, but the very act of going for it in Zealand rather than Holland, as DeWitt surely expected, and the naked fact that DeWitt could never hope to prevent him from doing so, particularly when William's actions created such excitement and enthusiasm, was all part of the plan. William knew that he was sticking it to both Holland and DeWitt, perhaps the two most important players in the Republic. Just as DeWitt fumed and recognised that William had somehow outwitted him with this gesture, one which drew passionate demonstrations from the Orangists present in Zealand, a province which housed far more Orangists than in Holland, he also had to accept that William could no longer be held back. On William's 18th birthday in November 1668, his official guardian, who was also the wife of the Elector of Brandenburg, revoked her guardianship of the young prince. William was thus declared leader of the House of Orange, or as we know him today, William III. The demonstrations in his favour which followed, and the awkwardness which he had created in Holland, did not at the same time lead William to make any rash moves. Above all, he wanted to test what Holland and De Witt would do, how far he could push the regions, and how much support he could count on, but he didn't have any illusions about his prospects. Even as a Zealander took office as ambassador to England, and made grand gestures to Charles II about the great news regarding his nephew's promotion, other powers looked on cautiously. Charles's diplomats were given instructions not to rely on William, and perhaps most revealingly were told to defer to Holland and De Witt when it came to making decisions about policy. Charles II, his nephew may have been disappointed to learn, was not about to go in a, was not about to go above and beyond for the prospect of an orange restoration without Holland's official support. Zealand's passionate advocacy and the enthusiasm of the peasantry there was certainly a good sign, but William would get nowhere in the Republic without the state's most important province, and so long as Holland was led by De Witt, such support was doubtful at best. 
In the backdrop of getting the other provinces to agree to ban William's ancestral position of stadtholder, a prospect which no doubt made William wince and may have even pushed him to ask for the first nobleship of Zealand in the first place, De Witt was forced to balance this personal victory with a level of bitterness. If the whole first noble affair reminded William of Holland's power, then it also demonstrated signs of William's legendary tenacity which were to make him famous in the coming years. Who could have known that this struggling teen would one day sit on Charles's throne? Certainly not De Witt, whose life's work to this point had been to protect his position and those of his allies, and prevent William from furthering his house's position any more than he already had. William had made waves, De Witt could muse, but he hadn't made much else. It had been a learning experience for the young prince above all, but it also separated him from his old guardians, one of whom had actually been De Witt whom William regularly met with for the purpose of education about statecraft. The idea of Johann de Witt educating his potential and no doubt certain enemy about how to get ahead may seem odd to us, but in de Witt's mind it all made sense to educate the prince about how the Republic worked. After all, when the arrangement had been concocted in 1660, it had been accepted that William would be first noble someday. Surely he would need to be prepared for this position when it was eventually given. What De Witt realised too late was that William felt he had learned all he needed to know. With the first nobleship episode over, William was free of his old guardians, and could act on his own accord and was, on paper at least, one of a few delegates to the state's general. Perhaps out of an acceptance that this would make William more present and visible in Dutch society, De Witt orchestrated the breakdown of the old education commission in early 1669. William had issued a fine challenge to De Witt, and demonstrated that he would not be held back or remain quiet as he advanced in age. In the process, the young prince had massively complicated matters for De Witt, as well as highlight the awkward provincial tensions which still flared up between Holland and Zealand, particularly with the perpetual edict hanging in the air. To one Hollander pamphleteer, the passions and disloyalty to the regents displayed by Zealand came as little shock, since Zealand preachers were still allowed to pray for the Prince of Orange. The difference in the tone of the prayers, the pamphleteer continued, was palpable, saying, As soon as they come to mention the House of Orange, they cast their eyes upwards and inflect their voices, as if their lives depended only upon the welfare of that young sapling and on the rest of the House of Orange. But when they pray for their lawful authority, They just mumbled as if they were praying for a woman lying in or for a sailor setting out on a dangerous voyage, which they do so much automatically that they have nearly done it before they give it so much as a thought. Yet even with DeWitt's tacit acceptance that things were now going to change where William's role in the Republic was concerned, two events in spring 1669 must have given the veteran Grand Pensionary reason for celebration. First, despite the Zealander ambassador in London, Charles's advice remained for William to defer to the Hollanders and not to go it alone or hope to effect any changes in the Republic without that province. This proved that England believed in the power of Holland and in the security of De Witt's regime. Second, and more shockingly, William accepted the harmony in April 1669, thereby banning his ancestral office and simultaneously pressuring the other resistant provinces to follow suit, including Zealand. If you're wondering why William did this, it's because he had little real choice. He couldn't move forward in Dutch society unless his status as first noble was seen to be endorsed by all. 
In return for the endorsement, William would accept that the position of Stadtholder no longer existed across the Republic. If this was a hard pill to swallow, and it no doubt was, William could certainly reconcile it with the fact that, as soon as he could, he would revoke the harmony, attain the Stadtholdership, and end the Regent regime. For the moment, in order to make the most of his early coming of age and new position, Holland and De Witt would have to be kept sweet. The normally anti-Orangist Peter Gale wrote an uncharacteristically triumphant conclusion to William's exploits and lessons learned since September 1668, saying that the whole series of events up to spring 1669 had been a striking spectacle. This inflexible self-confidence with which an untried young man pressed his claim to political leadership over the acknowledged, able and successful rulers of his early days. To begin with, he was convinced that he was entitled to that leadership as his birthright. What resounded in hundreds of pamphlets, in poems of praise, in sermons and orations, all that for William an unshakable dogma. In him lived the qualities of his glorious ancestors, and he felt called by God himself to continue their work. The royal rank of his mother added to his self-assurance. The cheers of the crowd and their uncritical confidence were a continual incentive. And soon afterwards came the realisation that he was, in fact, a leader of men. Such qualities could not have come at a better time for Dutch history, and in mid-1669 William was assigning himself another task. His uncle Charles had been especially quiet about repaying the large debts which the House of Stuart owed to Orange, accumulated over the years of politicking and lobbying since the Civil War. William of Orange, now leader of his house, wanted to make a return to his mother's homeland and collect on that debt. Such an opportunity would help William familiarise himself with how Britain and Ireland worked, and it may have been a good thing for the British people to see one of their princes visit. This was how William's advisers rationalised it, but the young prince would surely also have wanted to dispel the whispers coming from London that all was not hunky-dory in the Triple Alliance, and that the main source of opposition to the arrangement came not from some wily politician, but from William's uncle, Charles II of Britain. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.